most of this is uh, in the small category. Yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, yeah. would expect there so. There are mega investors out there. Um, uh, who are these people? Are these like, you know, mega investors, people who like invest in single family rentals or you know, who, what kinds of people are these investors? <laughs> Welcome back to Core Conversations, a Core Logic podcast, where we tour the property market to investigate how economics, climate change, governmental policy, and technology affect everyday life. I am your host, May Claire Bolton Smith, and I'm just as curious as you are about everything that happens in our industry. The property market is the biggest asset class in the world. So when it experiences a boom or a bust, we feel the effects worldwide. Just look at how the world markets have responded to changing property values in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, and the US. Central banks around the world have looked to slow runaway home price growth by raising interest rates. In the US, the Federal Reserve kicked off its rate hike campaign in March of 2022. But over the last year and a half, the housing market, which typically is interest rate sensitive, hasn't exactly done what one would expect. Despite the U.S. market cooling slightly, home prices are above their 2020 peak. But this phenomenon is largely unique to this country. Other markets like Canada, Australia, the U.K. and New Zealand saw similar gains, but the market has course corrected much more dramatically. So to talk about why the U.S. is an outlier in the property market and what we can expect in the global housing markets, we have CoreLogic economist Tom Malone here with us today. Tom, welcome to Core Conversations. Hey, man, Claire. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I'm super excited because we've talked about having you on the podcast for a long time. So let's just jump in and with a bit of background on what's been going on in the property market for the last several years. So can you just start by kind of laying the ground? What's happened with housing prices since the pandemic? And what about this year makes it so pivotal? Before we talk about the international housing market, I wanted to remind our listeners that we want to help you keep pace with the property market. To make it easy, we curate the latest insight and analysis for you on our social media where you can find us using the handle at CoreLogic on Facebook and LinkedIn or at CoreLogic Inc. on X, formerly known as Twitter and Instagram. But now let's get back to May Claire and Tom. So, well, we can kind of divide it into three periods since the start of the pandemic, I think. Let's Start with kind of year one, so mid-2020 to 2021, prices went up a lot then. They went up 15%, mostly driven by a big drop in interest rates when the pandemic wow. started. Yeah. And probably remote work became a thing, which yeah. also increased demand for housing. Right. When- yeah. And we've talked a lot about th- that part on the podcast. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean... We want more space at home because we're working at home, right? Yeah, yeah. So then next year, prices kept going up. You know, they went mid-2021 to mid-2022. Prices went up 21%. Same factors are at play. Remote work's still very active. Interest rates are still super low. But there was also a big increase in investors during this, investor presence Mm. in the market during this time. As far as CoreLogic's data goes back from 2011 to 2019, oh, in the start of 2020, investors had never really been more than 20% of the market, even at their highest points. But then, yeah, yeah. and then in 20, in sort of mid 2021, it just jumped up and investors became 
roughly a quarter of the market and wow. it's kind of stayed like that since then. So that's an additional group that's bringing demand into the market that probably had some some influence to increase prices even more along with the already existing factors we mentioned. Then we hit mid-2022 and interest rates go up. Demand right. drops and prices start to stall and drop just a little bit in response. Like, you know, prices went down about 3% from that 2022 peak to the trough at, in January wow. this year. Okay. I actually have a question that I think we should do for our listeners is how do we define investors? So how CoreLogic defines an investor is any buyer who owns more than three properties at ah, the okay. time of purchase. Yeah. Okay. More than three properties at the time of purchase. Okay. Wow. So that's kind of, it, it's kind of, you know, you're not getting the super small investors, like someone who just owns one investment property okay. or maybe someone like inherited their parents' home or something when they passed sure. away and they're yeah. renting that yeah. out. Like we, we, you wouldn't capture that investor in it, but sure. on the plus okay. side, you know, you're not capturing someone who's just buying their second home. Yeah. Yeah. That make that makes sense because yeah. I mean I I have a number of friends that own two properties and one of them is either, you know, they have it as an Airbnb or something like that too. So it really is people that are legitimate investors versus somebody just having one additional property. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I think also too I I also want to talk about levels of investors. So we're looking at people who buy or own more than three homes. So can you talk about like, what are the different levels of investors? I know sometimes we refer to mega investors too. So can we just define that a little bit? Yeah. So we've got several different categories of investors. You know, there's a small investor, consider someone who's got kind of three to nine properties, a medium-sized investor. Nine properties is yeah, small? Yeah, that's small. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, a medium-sized investor, that would be someone who's got 10 to 99. Wow. So, yeah, you know, 99 properties, maybe not that medium, but, like, <laughs> they've got a pretty big yeah, portfolio. My, but my mind is blown. would be 100 to 999. And then wow. Mega is... You know, mega, a thousand um, people with more than a thousand, a thousand or more properties. But, and, and my my brain just exploded. Oh my <laughs> goodness, I can't I can't even wrap my brain around that. Wow, that's 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 crazy. Most investors are in the small category. Yeah, <laughs> think about, I huh? yeah. The bit, would bit, so. There are mega investors out there. Um, uh, who are these people? Are these like you know? mega investors, people who like invest in single family rentals or you know, who, what kinds of people are these investors? It's a bit of a smorgasbord. So yeah, there's companies that their business is exclusively single family rentals. Like, okay. Um, a lot of whom have probably been, might have been recently bought by private equity funds. Um, ah, so they okay. might have some kind of private equity backer who's tapping capital markets directly to get the okay. funds to go out and buy homes. Um, there's international, there's companies that are buying on behalf of international conglomerates. And okay. then 
iBuyers are a category yeah. that definitely fits in there. Um, okay. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah we've talked about iBuyers. And iBuyers on the are, they're a special class of home flippers. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about iBuyers before on this podcast and fascinating again, too. If you want to hear more about iBuyers, check out episode 52 from earlier this season. It was published on February 8th and is called PropTech's Convenience Will Cost You, But How Much? You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I guess another question it, it leads the question to is how many do we know the percentage of these investors that are in other countries purchasing in the U.S.? Like, are there other... Uh, investors abroad that purchase in the U.S. and I guess vice versa, too. Are there investors in the U.S. that are purchasing properties in in bulk <laughs> abroad? Uh, yeah, there definitely are. <laughs> okay. So with all this investor buying activity, somebody buying a thousand properties, h- how does the investor activity impact home prices? Um, it's not totally clear. Right? Okay. So an additional investor is an additional piece of demand in the market, right? Mm. It raises demand. This undoubtedly raises prices. How much it raises prices is another question. And mm. it hasn't, there's not really a study that's properly kind of quantified it. Like, sure. Because there's a chicken in the egg problem, right? It, did, did investors come and start buying because prices were going up and they saw an asset that they could get a good return on? Or did investors cause the price increase? It's probably a bit of both and there's kind of like a perpetual motion thing going on there. But were investors responsible, like, you know, prices went up 41% in two years. Were investors responsible for 20% of that 41%? 15%, 10%, 5%? It's unclear how much of the price increases we can attribute to them as opposed to low interest rates or remote work or first-time home buyers or something like that. You know. Interesting. So really, so really just like a combination of a number of things that really come into to play here. Yeah. The reasons why prices went up are multifaceted mm-hmm. and assigning weightings to each reason Mm -hmm. is very complicated and economists will probably be working it out for years and years and years a lot of fun for an economist it's that time again grab a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage we're going to do the numbers in the housing market here's what you need to know Home purchases and their corresponding mortgages are not the only real estate transactions that are squeezing affordability. When mortgage rates moved from 3% to 8%, it wiped out about 36% of home buyers' purchasing power. Renters are also feeling the pinch. Annual U.S. rent growth continues to impact tenant budgets. Since February of 2022, single-family rents grew by 30%. However, recent months have indicated signs of relief. Year-over-year, rental cost for attached properties grew 3.5%. For detached properties, rent growth was slightly lower, gaining only 2.3%. On the home price side, persistent mortgage rate increases have put the U.S. housing market in a quagmire, driving home sales activity to the lowest level in 15 years. Although home sales have slumped, prices have remained remarkably steady. Home prices are now up 0.4% compared with the June 2022 peak. When compared to the January 2023 lows, they are up by 6.4%. 
And that's The Sip. See you next time. Um, okay, so you know, normally when we talk about housing prices on this podcast, you know, we, we pretty much are talking about the U.S. But this is something that's not just in the U.S., right? Like we've seen this similar movement on a global scale. So is there anywhere in particular that is, you know, noteworthy that's beyond the U.S.? Um, well, it's, you know, it's the whole world, really. There's plenty mm. of places besides the U.S. where prices went up a lot during the same mm. period. Um, you know, uh, New Zealand, where I'm mm-hmm. from, prices originally, prices went up 46%. So that was wow. actually higher than the U.S. Yeah. Um, the U.S. went up 41% over the two-year period. Wow. Similarly, Canada, um, your home where country. Yeah. <laughs> Close, close behind, 37%. Um, And then, you know, Australia and the UK, they were in the high 20s as well. So it was not isolated at all. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, wow. But, but like, you know, we had the same factors influencing demand in those places. Sure. The pandemic was global. It dropped rates globally. It made people, it sent people home from the office globally as well. Yeah. Wow. It's really remarkable how one event like that had such a profound impact on everything in the world. And when we look at the housing market, which we've talked about is the biggest asset class, how it really fundamentally changed how people live and how people, you know, are purchasing homes. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, you, as we mentioned, you're from New Zealand, I'm originally from Canada. Like, I want to talk a little bit about how unique the U.S. market has been compared to some of those things. And, you know, something that, you know, your colleague Molly Basil has, we've talked about a lot on this podcast, too, is how the U.S. is very unique in how we have fixed rate mortgages for 30 and 15 years. And in other countries, they don't have these fixed rate mortgages. So advantages, disadvantages of the U.S. compared to other countries, you know, both for a homeowner versus, you know, the economy at large. Like, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the way we do this here in the U.S. with fixed rate mortgages? Before we shift gears to talk about mortgages, we're going to take a break to tell you about an opportunity that you have in January to come meet some of our experts, including May Claire, in person. I'm Garrett Gray, and I'm standing here at the Fairmont in Austin And I can't wait to see you at Interconnect 2024. Interconnect is where the insurance restoration industry comes together to solve tomorrow's problems today. So come on down to Austin, make sure you have a seat at the table because we need your voice. There's not one group or company that can tackle these problems alone. It's all of us coming together to focus on the lives beyond the buildings. Register today and I'll see you in Austin. Okay, so, well, the difference between us and these other countries and why we have mostly fixed-rate mortgages, you, you know, some, some people might still have an sure. arm. It's because yeah. it, um, we have securitization in the U.S. and mm-hmm. other countries don't have securitization. So, like, I, I bought my first home earlier this year. Um, I went to a mortgage broker. I got a loan for the mm-hmm. home. I made one payment to that. Mm-hmm broker, right? And then I get a letter in the mail saying, hey, your loan's been sold on to a bank. Mm-hmm. You're now making payments to this bank. Then I get another letter a couple of months later from the bank saying, oh, hey, we've sold your loan on to Freddie Mac. 
Mm-hmm. And what Freddie Mac is, that they're taking my loan with a bunch of other loans, they're bumbling them all up into a big mortgage-backed security, which is being sold on to a bunch of different yeah. investors. Yeah. Or maybe held by Freddie themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so that means that the risk of me either defaulting or paying off my whole loan early and the lender not collecting all the interest mm-hmm. isn't borne by the person who actually made me the loan or the bank. Ah, okay. It's distributed okay. amongst a bunch of different people. Yeah. In most countries, the bank makes the loan and then the bank keeps the loan. Right. So the bank is bearing this risk. Gotcha. So they can't offer you as favorable terms as something like a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage yeah. or um, prepayment penalties are pretty common in New Zealand, mm-hmm. for instance, and, and mm-hmm. in most other countries. And you know, you're not going to end the opportunity to refi as well is mm-hmm. not going to be as prevalent because you don't have fixed-rate mortgages. So yeah. Like to get to get a sense of that, um, in New Zealand, for instance, pretty much everyone has some kind of what we would think of similar arms um, for us or adjustable rate mortgage. Like when you go and you buy a house and you get a mortgage, the bank will offer you kind of a menu, right, of okay. interest rates for different terms. Like your mortgage will still be 20, 25, 30 years that your interest rate will be adjusting according to the market throughout that. So the bank might offer me, hey, you can take one year at 3%, two years at locked in at 4%, three years locked in at 5%, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, up until yeah. five years yeah. probably. And most people generally go with two years. So advantages and disadvantages of basically having adjustable mortgages versus fixed rate mortgages for, well, advantages, owners love it, right? Um, Sure. (laughs) There's there's a level of anxiety and uncertainty for a homeowner to not know what your mortgage payment or your home payment is going to be in five years time. Like that would cause a lot of uncertainty to people. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know exactly what my mortgage payment is mm-hmm. going to be the entire course of the mortgage. Exactly, yeah. Similarly, I know if the market turns favorably for me, I'm going to be able to refinance my mortgage at a lower rate and have that locked in for the rest of yeah. the loan as well. Yeah. In other countries, yeah, that option's not there. So it's yeah. definitely a really good deal for the buyers. Compared for the homeowner, to, yeah, absolutely, know. yeah. It's interesting because you talk a lot of, about a lot of this stuff, and I think for the average you know, homeowner, they have no idea about all of this stuff that happens in the background, right? Like all of the mortgage bank security, the mortgage backed securities and Freddie Mac and and Fannie Mae, like the secondary markets, like people receive that letter saying your mortgage has been sold to so, so and so. And like, does that even mean anything to them? So I think for the average homeowner, like they, they don't realize, right? Yeah, you don't necessarily make the connection yeah. that the reason I have yeah. the mortgage the way I do yeah. is because of the same reason that I got that letter saying that my mortgage is now owned by some exactly. government-sponsored enterprise. Yeah, yeah, that it's the way, it's the reason our mortgage market is able to operate the way it does in this country. Yeah, I mean, when I speak to, I, 
either way, people here or people at home, I don't know about you talking that. I don't know about you with, um, you know, your family and friends back in Canada, yeah. but that, like, their minds are blowing people yes. back home when I explain that <laughs> the mortgage system here and that, like, Absolutely. oh, no, my interest rate isn't going to change. That's yeah. that's it. Yeah, no, yeah. and I can pay yeah. it off whenever I want, and I won't yeah. have to pay any fees or yeah. anything like that for yeah. it. Yeah, they. it's yeah. exactly the same experience that I have with my and, family and with my friends. And they're like, they're like, no, 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 you're wrong. And I'm like, yeah. no, it just it works that way here. So, yeah. And vice get, versa, when I, yeah. when I tell any of my American friends, it's, yeah, what? The, the the rate change you don't just get a 30 like you don't have fixed rate mortgages for that like you would have to pry my mortgage out of my my fixed rate mortgage out of my cold yeah. dead hands <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it it really is it's interesting and in all honesty I didn't really understand the differences um until I bought a house here and I went through the process of, you know, refining and, you know, my family being like, why are you doing that? Like, what, what, why do you get that opportunity? And what are you doing? And saying something, even when we bought this house, because we recently moved into a, a, a bigger home. And I, you know, said something, you know, about where we were with, you know, higher interest rates. And my dad's like, well, that's not forever. That's just, you know, for the first few years. And, you know, it could even go higher. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works no. here. So, yeah, it's it's it kind of is mind blowing to people in other markets and other countries that don't experience um, what we have here. May Claire and Tom spent this episode talking about investors and their effects on the housing market, both domestically and internationally. They also touched on what makes the U.S. mortgage market so unique. In next week's episode, they'll dive into why international housing prices have come down so dramatically, why the U.S. continues to see relatively stable prices, and what mortgages have to do with this. We'll pick back up next week. See you there. All right. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse Devenins, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, our facts guru Erica Stanley, and social media duo Sarah Buck and Michaela Brooks. Tune in next time for another core conversation. You still there? Well, thanks for sticking around. Are you curious to know a little bit more about our guest today? Well, Tom Malone is an economist in the office of the chief economist at CoreLogic. He is responsible for analyzing housing markets and home price trends with a particular focus on investors. He has an extensive background in urban and real estate economics and applied econometrics. You can read more of his analysis at corelogic.com forward slash intelligence. The link is in the show notes.